Well, good afternoon and thank you once again for joining me for Business, the Law and You. Julian Campbell here. We've got another interesting show lined up for you this week. But later in the program, we'll have a look at one of those Harvard Business Review tips. This particular one is four steps to structure your team meetings better. We'll also be chatting with Christina, who is still on that Greek island, and she's going to talk about chaos in method and process and some examples from that little green Greek island that she's on. But right now we're going to have a chat with Rana Garda from a partner with Turnbull Hill Lawyers about business succession. Good afternoon, Rani. Hi, Julian. Thank you for joining us again. So business succession, what happens to my business if I die? Julian, it depends on how you own your business. So if you're owning your business as a sole trader, then the business assets will form part of your estate and will be covered by your will. In most cases, unless there's a person who's willing to take on the business or buy the business, the business is often wound up um, after any outstanding amounts have been collected or paid. However, if you run your business through a company, then your shares in the company are covered under your will and the company constitution will determine who can be a director in your place. If you're a sole director of a company, then it is usually your legal personal representative or your executor who assumes control of the company. So it's vital that you have reviewed or will review your constitution to ensure that the right person has control of your business upon your passing. That, that latter one describes me. Is, is, that some, <laughs> is that something I would have to put in my will? Well, in your will, your executor is the person who steps forward to look after your business. However, if you think someone else would be better at that, probably someone who has worked in the business perhaps or, or knows about it, um, then, then that should be accounted for in your will. Mm, okay. So what happens to my business if I was to lose capacity? Um, again, if you're a sole trader, then you're, if you have an enduring power of attorney, they can step in and again either run the business, sell the business, or wind up the business. But if you don't have an enduring power of attorney, you may be in some trouble about who can actually um, step in and, and transact and operate in relation to the business. If you run your business through a company, um, a company can't lose capacity. However, it's far more complicated because what we're looking at then is the constitution or you may have a shareholders agreement that will determine who can be a director. So if it is a sole director, sole shareholder company, and the constitution doesn't allow for a loss of, loss of uh, capacity, then there's going to be um, an issue because there'll be no one to actually control and run the company. So again, it's about making sure if you have your constitution reviewed, um, then you can adopt a new constitution that will allow for either an enduring power to step in or, or someone else. So, so again, in the company situation, uh, an enduring power of attorney is one of the ways to go? Absolutely, if, particularly if you are a sole director, sole shareholder. Okay. Which a lot of businesses and companies are. Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a sole director, but my wife and I are both shareholders, so... Okay, yeah. well, in that case, uh, your wife could step in. Yeah. Um, but why leave it open when you can easily you sort of close it down? 
Yes. Okay. So, what, what the other one, I suppose, which is probably uh, an important one, if I want to retire, who would take over? Look, in an ideal world, you would decide to retire and there'll be someone there to either purchase your business or take over the running of your business and you sit back and enjoy the dividends. However, this is unfortunately rarely the case. You need to look at your business and see who is appropriate to take over from you as well as who is likely to be able to raise the funds to buy you out. It's becoming increasingly common for this to be dealt with at the start of a business venture um, among existing shareholders and business holders by way of a deed. And in that situation, you can set out what terms um, will be put into place when you retire. And even the process for calculating the value of the shares and the interest in your business, if Again, you're a sole practitioner. You need to look to see perhaps if there's any employees or any competitors that may be capable or interested in taking you over. But I would say it's unsafe to assume that when you decide to step away, there'll be someone willing to buy your business and that will refund your retirement. So again, it's probably about planning that if you know in three years you want to retire, you really need to start now to see if there's some someone who's interested in purchasing or taking over the business. Do you, do you find that this is something that people just leave and leave and leave and don't really plan properly? I do. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, with life, you may not plan it to be the end when it is. So, you know, you get injured. Yeah. You, things like that. So, again, having proper business succession planning... Um, is, is vital because I know in my case I, I've got employees and I want to make sure that if something happened to me um, they'd still be looked after. Yeah, okay. Well, thanks very much for your time again. Um, we'll have another chat next month. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Rani Gardev from Turnbull Hill Lawyers, Business Succession. Yeah, it's something that we often uh, don't get right, isn't it? And we don't take much time until it's too late. And uh, we never, we've got to think about those things that if we die or if we lose capacity, we need to make sure we've got the legal aspects taken care of. Time to have our chat with Christina. Good afternoon, Christina. Or good morning, Christina. I know it's very early here, Julian. How are you? I'm glad you got out to bed to have a chat with us. Not a problem. And as I said, is the uh, the title chaos is chaos in method and process? Yeah. So we find that we're relying more and more on methods and processes. And um, as you know, I'm sitting on a um, at the moment working from a, a a small Greek island. And what I've been noticing is the processes and the differences in the way operations happen here. Everything from the way that people, you know, line up at an airport and and, and a process through from the um, from the security um, way, but also even in simple things, simple businesses like restaurants or banks um, and the building culture. So I thought maybe we run through a couple of those processes that are happening here and very much how they culturally fit within different organisations. So, for example, um, when we're ordering at a restaurant here, there's, you know, at home if we've run out of everything, if we've run out of a particular meal, it's kind of a big ma against the restaurant's restaurant. name. Um, but the process here is that everything is so natural and so homegrown that it's expected that at times 
you know, food will run out, that you will need to move to the next part of the menu. And this is all part of the natural process, and therefore there's not that, that, um, that anxiety we get sometimes if, if we're trying to order something and we constantly realise that something has run out. So just even in the ordering, um, the, way, the way things happen around um, product that comes in, so, you know, if it runs out, it runs out. If it's not fresh, it's not fresh. We're not going to try and do anything different. Um, the other thing that I noticed um, is uh, some friends of mine are doing some building. And the whole culture around the building industry isn't ring up a builder, let's get a quote. It's ring up a builder, the builder comes around, has a discussion with you. Most of that discussion is actually done on a personal, on a personal level so that the builder and the client get to know each other. And we know that even at home there's this big push around culture um, and what's the culture of the organisation and how are people going to respond in a, in a time of crisis or how easily are people going to be able to contact. All of that is worked out over the first couple of coffees, um, literally a first couple of coffees, where people find out about each other and, and the culture and that kind of personal process is worked out. So I thought that was quite interesting. And it's not that far removed from what we do. There's a slight shift in the mentality around what happens. Do you think that's uh, because also, you're on a little island rather than on the main area of Greece? Um, it, potentially, yes, it is. However, these are people that aren't um, that don't have close relationships and that don't live live um, on the island. They're actually okay. expats, so that's what made me notice the process more. It wasn't that it was a relationship between two people that live on the island. It's a relationship between somebody who is not a local who doesn't live here. Um, and the person that's going to be responsible for carrying out the work while those people aren't actually in the, you know, on the island. Mm. So, and, and like I said, it's not that big a shift, but it's that, it's that slight little personal shift. The first cup of coffee I have, I don't really want to find out about what it is that you want me to do. I want to find out about you, what your likes are, what your dislikes are, so that we have this um, method of operation. And we talk about everything becoming individualised and personalised, uh, and it's almost... It's almost that in its in its form before we moved forward from it, and it wasn't. If that kind of makes sense. So the the, the culture is the the things that we're trying to come back to that already exist. And you and I have had many conversations in the innovation space around where that is. You know, we see that constantly. We go, well, it's not new. It, it's something that's being slightly recycled on its way back in. So mm. I thought that was an interesting an interesting shift. Um, the other thing that's actually blown me away is the ability these days of people to be able to, to work anywhere, you know. So we're on this constant um, push at the moment that you are able to work anywhere, that do we need office spaces, do we need places where people um, personally connect? And I can tell you the answer to both those questions is yes, um, because as much as, you know, this is for me a working experience, the difficulty in that is, you know, I was on a meeting at 1.30 this morning and here here at 1.30 my morning and here I am back at 6 o'clock my morning. So, you know, when we say, can we work anywhere? Yes, but we still have to overcome time zones and sometimes in those creative brainstorm sessions, um, there's nothing like that face-to-face energy and that's something mm-hmm. else that I've noticed, that draw on energy, which I think is, is really important. So what we, you know, as always, what we need to come to is a balance in the way we operate. Have you have you found uh, that you've been able to do some face-to-face, though, with, with Zoom or something like that? Yes, I've done many, many Zoom meetings. Um, I actually presented at a conference um, in Melbourne from, you know, from a cafe last week, uh, and it was a great experience, and, the, you know, the talk was well-received. 
but I noticed as a presenter, not being able to pick up on the energy in the room mm. um, was quite remarkable. So I'm, I'm, I guess, a bit of an intuitive, uh, and I will read my audience before you know before I'm speaking. So not to feel that energy was quite a unique experience for me. Um, and I had a camera facing the facing the crowd, so I could see what they were doing. Um, and whether they were, you know, watching watching the screen, uh, and and that was all really good. But it was that energy, that feel that we get off, you know, human to human contact. So again, worst, the worst thing that could have happened was that I that potentially I couldn't have done um, the presentation. Um, the best thing that happened was that it was possible because of technology, you know, on a tiny Greek island. Uh, yeah. And the but the other thing was there is nothing like that connection, that that human energy that we know exists and we're trying to put our finger on how to best capture that. Yeah, so it's great. It's a great learning process there. You you can uh, write a book on it when you come back. Oh, well, and I also think, you know, every time I travel, whether it's a business or whether it's a pleasure, I always say to people, and, and, you know, in workshops and things like that, and I know that you've used this as well, look like a tourist. You know, when you're, when you're actually having a look at your environment at home, the next time you travel somewhere, open your eyes as you do when you're a tourist. So what is it that you're not noticing because you're used to seeing it every day? It's, mm. it's in your normal periphery. What is it that you're not seeing? And I think that's a really um, a, a really good opportunity that happens after we've travelled for a period of time or after we've you know been visiting relatives in Sydney or Melbourne or wherever, um, that we come home and we go, fresh eyes, what does yeah. this look like when I'm looking from outside? Or have a talk to a visitor and see what the visitor is experiencing. You know, many years ago, I remember Roger Langston, who came up for a BRW Most Innovative Breakfast. He said to me, you guys are so San Francisco. And I said, what do you mean? He said, the activity on the harbour that we've just seen, um, and he's looking up, I think it's Brown Street, is our really steep street. He looked up Brown Street and he's gone, my God, that, you know, that just reminds me of San Francisco and the way mm. that you operate in the climate. And I've gone, and it was the first time I had, had gone, you know what, we are. Mm. Yeah, we are, so San Francisco. So, you know, through the eyes of a visitor, um, when you've come back from, a, from a, a travel, whether it's a business travel or a personal travel, what is it that you now notice? Um, and what processes are there that you can learn about? Okay, well, thank it's you very much. Thank you very much for your time and uh, getting up early and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. And we mm. may or may not talk to you next week, depending on where you're travelling. I'll look forward to it either way. Thanks, Julian. Have Thanks. a great day. Christina there in the little Greek island, finding out what it's like to run a business away from home and uh, obviously looking at the pros and cons. Time for our Harvard Business Review tip. This particular one, four steps to structure your team meetings better. Well, let's be honest, most meetings are a waste of time, especially if they aren't well designed. Next time you lead a team meeting, take the time to carefully structure it so that the duration and content align with the objective. So first of all, determine in the, to, to define the work of the team. What specifically do you and the attendees need to accomplish? Secondly, divide the agenda items into categories. We aren't good at changing the pace or tenor of a conversation once it starts, so don't try to combine different types of discussions. Instead, characterise similar items together. If necessary, create other meetings to address other types of conversations. Thirdly, determine the length. Figure out how much time you need based on a fair estimate of how long each agenda item will take, plus a little panning, and don't let your calendar app decide the length. If you need 15 minutes, don't schedule 30. Finally, plan for overflow. 
If you run out of time, don't cram agenda items into the end of the meeting. Set up a time to address topics you don't get to, which may only require a subset of the group. So a little bit of information there for setting up a good meeting. Well, thank you for being with me for the last half hour. We've looked at business succession and the importance of making sure your legal side is covered there. In a moment, Jane Klein will be back with you with more of your easy listening favourites. Next week, we're going to talk about accountability buddies with Kimberly Claire Campbell from the Hunter Region Business Hub. We may have our minute on innovation with Christina, but we will have some more business and legal news and views that might affect your business. I'd love your company again for business, the law and you at the same time next week. Until then, have an exciting and prosperous week. And as Thomas Jefferson once said, the glow of one warm thought is to me worth more than any money. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.